From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to two hours of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. Coming to you with the whole crew, all the co-hosts from Wharton Moneyball for almost nine years now. Eric Bradlow is here. Shane Jensen is here. Audie Weiner is here. And this is Cade Massey. We will be here for the next two hours. We're going to do a couple of open segments in Qs 1 and 4. We have interviews in Qs 2 and 3. Daniel Eck, stats prof, talking about baseball, trying to reconcile comparisons across eras in baseball. You can imagine some folks on this show a little interested in that conversation. And then Erica Thompson, Erica, the author of a new book on modeling and avoiding some of the model traps, Escape from Model Land, interesting new book from Erica we're going to chat with her about that in Q3. In Q1, gentlemen, it's Tuesday afternoon. We're recording at our usual time, Tuesday afternoon. The show will go up on Wednesday on SiriusXM, be replayed a few times over the week, and we'll get the podcast up on Wednesday as well. Last night, we have to start here, right? Last night, an historic beatdown on the national stage for the college football championship. We're done with college football as of last night, 65-7, to seven, Georgia Bulldogs, two-time only the third or fourth time in the last 20, 30 years, a repeat winner. TCU embarrassed, basically, and college football's over. What are y'all's thoughts on that? And then we'll move on to the NFL. Just a, just a few maybe quick thoughts. One is um, something I put in the rundown last night before the game started was something that Bill Barnwell had put in his blog post, which I thought was interesting. He's like, no one believes the line was about 14, 14 and a half points. He goes, no one believes the line should only be 14. The only explanation he could come up with was that it, there's a bimodal distribution. There's some significant probability that Georgia absolutely blows them out. And there's maybe some other probability, modest as it might be, that TCU wins in a small kind of you know victory, maybe by a couple of points. And so in his point, most of the mass, if you ask what's the probability Georgia wins the game, he might have said 97%, which yeah. is actually not consistent with a line of only 14. It would be, might be 20, 22, 23. And so I found that really interesting. And then as I was watching the game, you know, you start, you know, it's what we do as statisticians. So your prior is that there's this bimodal distribution, maybe with a small hump around a positive value for TCU. And then as you're watching the first drive, second drive, third drive, et cetera, you start to put less and less weight on this possibility that TCU can even make this a close game. And a matter of fact, if you had literally built a time varying posterior distribution as the game was going on, not only do I think that second hump the one near TCU doing well would go away, but if the distribution would start shifting, really just, I was watching FanDuel and the betting line as the game was going on. Basically <laughs> for every point Georgia was scored, there was no shrinkage. Like Georgia scored seven. Let's only say they're going to win by four more. No, they're going to win by about 6.6 more for every <laughs> touchdown they were scoring. So you just, it was fascinating watching this time varying updating as things were going on. So, uh, you know, I'm not a big college football guy, as we all kind of know, but I did book. There's hope yet. There's hope. Life. There's hope yet, Adi. There's hope yet. Um, but I did book myself uh, uh, some time in front of the TV to watch the game last night, and I found myself with lots of free time as a consequence. Yeah. Why? Because yeah. at 15 minutes in, it was a blowout. And I kept, I just wondered, 
Um, I think you're, 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 you're the, the thinking, I think you, you've modeled the thinking quite, quite well, Eric. There's, there's a, a mass at a blowout and there's a smaller mass that it's tight, which ends up kind of a 14 point. Um, that, can't, uh, but hold on. That, can't, that can't be right. Right. I mean, so one, Eric, I bet you meant Bill Conley. I didn't read Bill's article, but not Bar- Barnwell's NFL writer. So did Bill he was actually talking about no, that no, last it, week on our show it, though. It Bill was, Conley, I, I may have it wrong. I think it was Barnwell, but while you guys are talking, okay. I'll but go ahead. Okay, but uh, y'all are statisticians. I mean, Adi is a full-on probabilist. And are you really yeah. going to model this thing yeah. bimodally? That seems so, unlikely. No one models People don't model it bimodally. It's, it's people's thoughts about it. But, but here's, but here's my, my, my question. I mean, every, it, my, here's my question. After this entire season and this massive process you spend so much time thinking about, how did we end up here with, with a blowout? Of the <laughs> well, I mean, blowouts do happen in big games. Even, in, I mean... No, Obviously. no, hold on a minute. This is this is epic, isn't it? I mean, to me, let's let's. What is your posterior distribution now on on where uh, TCU is among the top five? Posterior. Now that you've seen it, I don't. I, it, I mean, same I, as I, it was, the same as my prior number five. Yeah, I mean, you, you know, I mean, uh, a the despair. You know, I mean, top five, sure. Top, you know, I, I put them behind top twenty. Yeah, of course. An, an, I mean, because even 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 if TCU can't, like, I mean, you know, even if TCU is a top five school, blowouts can happen. I mean, they got absolutely thoroughly dismantled. But we've seen this happen, yeah. even in you know, in the like I always, as I'm watching this game and getting frustrated by how non-competitive it is, I'm like, oh, you know, college football, there's no parity, blah blah. blah. But I mean, honestly, you don't have to think far back to you know. NFL, you can have a Super Bowl that's, you know, as big of a demolishing. For, for years, that's why you know, Super Bowls win. That, you, you know, in, in, a, in a league where we kind of agree there's more parity. I mean, you know, that Denver-Seattle Super Bowl. Okay, was but equally, okay, all that all that said, Shane, uh, yeah, all that said, I think Adi's question is reasonable. The spirit of it is reasonable. Yeah. I mean, how do we feel what, about what, can, I, can you point back to, to the process along the way? The process, not but, the outcome. Yeah, no, I think everybody. Point back to the process and say, did it, it was an error made. No, this is this is the consequence of letting it be played on the field, which I think should be glorified. We made mistakes for years in college football by by selecting the two teams to play instead of letting letting them play it out on the field. And so basically justified justified their inclusion, I think, by beating, you know, by beating Michigan. But but Shane, at the same time, they they probably weren't going to win that game if, you know, they weren't going to win it five times out of 10 if they played it ever. This is the thing. They should have been beat in the semifinals when it comes down to it. They earned it. By God, they earned it. And it ought to be earned on the field. But the upset that exaggerated this one that didn't have that happened in the semifinal because they had like 24 expected points added by defense or something, you know, a couple of right. pick sixes. And see, and but, but you can take it back further. Michigan blew Ohio State out in the Big Ten final. But a lot of people thought that was a little bit illusory, that there were these explosive plays that were not going to be persistent, and that's not going to happen again if you play those. It could be that Ohio State was the better team out of those two. So there's a few things that stack up. But, Adi, I have got zero angst about it in the end because we have more of it playing out on the field in front of us than we used to, and we're going to have more in future years. And I think that's the, the way it ought to be. I think, the, yeah. I think I think the part that lots of people are having trouble getting their head around, maybe which Adi is talking about is, so, you know, I'll call it the intransitivity, or maybe it's also the random yeah. variation, which is, so Georgia barely escapes Ohio State. As a matter of fact, Ohio State, by every measure, should have won that yeah. game. Yeah. And Michigan, yeah, with all the injuries? Are you kidding right. me? Michigan, 
blows out Ohio State. <laughs> TCU beats Michigan. Yeah. Therefore, shouldn't TCU versus Georgia be a competitive game? The team that beat Ohio State that should have beaten Georgia gets yeah. beaten, and now TCU plays and they lost 65-7. to seven. So that's the problem that you know many people that are thinking about, whether it's transitivity or point spreads, are thinking about, like, how could this happen? Yeah, I, mean, I, I just don't think transitivity is really – uh, yeah. particularly present in football in general or, you know, sports in yeah. general, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, the, let me distinguish between two things. I mean, there's the, 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 the observation that team A beats team B, which beats C, beats D, but A beats D, uh, but D beats A. That's what we often think of as, trans, as, non, yeah. on, as non-transitivity. That can happen because of randomness, but it can also happen because of play style, Right. Um, and and mm-hmm. sort of different matchups. Right. And I think what we're what you're saying is this is happening if it's happened at all because of randomness or is it or is it I mean, and, and, right. and, and, and is it randomness or is it or is it something else that causes the transitivity? Yeah, I, 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 you know, come on, guys. The randomness is almost always the most parcimonious explanation. Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially I like TCU appears to play a very random. I mean, if you want to talk about play style, it seems like they invest in randomness. That's their, that's yeah. part of their. There's, you know, kind of part of their play style. And that's and not. It, it, that's it, it not didn't work out last night. That's, and that's not. And that's not BS. I mean, that's, that's a real thing. You can dial that up, dial it down, both on the offensive side of the ball and defensive side of the ball. You're dialing up or dialing down variants, and they've got it dialed up on both sides of the ball. I, one of so the things I was thinking during the game, uh, Kate, you remember I've always made that claim that I can watch the first drive of each team of the game. <laughs> and watch, but I'm not going to watch the outcome. I'm just going to watch the offensive and defensive lines. Yeah. Yeah. I have by the end of the game, just to amuse myself, Adi, because I kept pain. I kept watching this painfully. I was thinking, okay, let's say we just took Georgia's offensive and defensive line. They still get the play. But now I take the 30th ranked quarterback and receivers. I don't know a team. I don't know. Michigan State. Wisconsin. Wisconsin. And I put them behind Michigan's offensive line, uh, Georgia's offensive line. And I take a a decent but not great defense and back end of the defense, you know, linebackers, uh, safeties, et cetera. And I put them there. I still think Georgia wins the game because the the, the the controlling of the line of scrimmage at one point during the game, Georgia was averaging mostly through the game over 10 yards of play. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, they were scoring one point of play. Yeah. And I think in the game, they maybe they punted once, maybe, but they had nine touchdowns and a field goal. I've never. And I think the part actually that was I know it's going to sound strange. Maybe I'm the only one. The part that was more impressive to me. Was that TCU only scored seven points? I didn't. Yeah. So, I didn't think Georgia would have so, trouble scoring. I thought Georgia might win the game fifty to thirty or fifty to forty. But the fact that TCU only scored seven—that's the part that impressed me more by Georgia. But what you're describing is a mismatch of epic proportions, not just yeah. randoms. Yeah, that's that, no, no. I, it, it, it is a mismatch. I, mean, I told you last week that Massey Peabody line was nineteen. You know, just to show you but, the difference. But, but Audi, but Audi, they earned it. They earned it in the following way. They, I mean, what's weird is they weren't the Big Twelve champs. What, what, what? I, I'm not sure Kansas State would have done any better. Kansas State got spanked. The Big Twelve champs got spanked by Alabama. But I think most people were satisfied with the selection of them into the four. They earned it in regular season. Again, they earned it on the field. There wasn't another team. USC was the closest thing, but they got beat in the Pac-12 championship. So there really wasn't a lot of 
angst about them getting selected in. They earned it there. Now you can go back and look at their schedule and think maybe they squeaked by a couple of places they shouldn't have. I mean, my God, multiple times barely getting there. Their right. undefeated, their undefeated record going into the Big 12 title game might have been a little illusory again, but let's let them play on the field. But I love this model where you take conference champions into the playoff. And then what happens happens. It's gonna be earned on the field. This is what we need to get back to. This is what every other sport does. I mean, college football is the only sport that's been absurdly saying, let's pick two teams and say they're the best teams and play one game. But you have to settle for random variation and mismatches if you're going to let it play out on the field. I think it's funny that you point that out, kid. I hadn't even thought about that until now. TCU, you say, so what did they win? They didn't win their conference. No. <laughs> they lost. They lost to Kansas State. They yeah. obviously didn't win the championship. I'm not saying they didn't have a good year by lots of measures. But maybe actually, maybe all of us should have, I hadn't even thought about this either. Maybe we should have looked at the Alabama versus Kansas State game to portend something that yeah. might happen when an elite SEC yeah. team sure. plays sure. even the top of the Big 12. And, but it's funny you mentioned Alabama because I, if I remember correctly, it might have been number five. So they, they that's, that's number five. There was just a falling away of rivals for that fourth spot. So even TCU losing by a little in the Big 12 championship wasn't enough to knock them down out of that number four spot. That's how it went down, basically. I want to note one other thing that I think is one of the most impressive things about this is that Georgia won the title last year and had 15 players drafted into the NFL. And they came back this year and went undefeated and won the title again. I mean, it's an absurd robustness to loss of players over. Can you imagine the talent you have to either have or develop in order to lose 15 players drafted? That's crazy. Yeah, but I mean, it doesn't, you know, like what it's the kind of those like five-star athletes and stuff like that. Don't they console it? Like, you know, don't, don't like four or five teams suck up about 80% of that distribution. Uh, okay. So it's only, they're only about 25, I think in that uh, five stars around okay. 30, but four, there's a lot more fours and they consider okay. fours yeah. and fives. Fours to blue teams. There's a very big drop um, in uh, odds of being drafted when you go from five to four. And it, but, and but Shane, Shane's, Shane's, I, I, guess what, I, would, I would expect more year to year consistency in college football because there aren't the same parody inducing mechanisms that yeah. you have in professional football. Like yep. the draft and, yep. you know, yep. sort and, of and, and Shane, we've seen more concentration in recent years mm-hmm. and there are these institutional yeah. inertia that happen with, with good and bad institutions, rich and yeah. poor institutions. All of those create more inertia. Eric's jumping in. I think he's going to take us. I'm guessing there's something going on. What's going on here? No, 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 no. I was just going to comment that if we want to talk about winning back to back, this was actually just snuck in at the end of the telecast last night. Georgia's schedule next year yeah. no, is incredibly weak. Yeah. Like, when I, I mean, the best, the only chance most people give them of losing, maybe they'll lose at home to Ole Miss, probably not. They're playing at Tennessee. Yeah. But yeah. there's yeah. no Alabama on their schedule. Yeah. They're, I mean, there's no, there's no, I mean, Auburn's on their schedule. So, I mean, but at the end of the they day. Had to, they had to, they had to drop, they had Oklahoma non-conference and they had to drop that. The SEC made them drop it because yeah. So my comment is, there's very high probability. I'd be I'd be interested. We'll cover this in another show. I would put seventy five percent probability. Given I don't know what you're about to say, but that's too high. The title? No, that's not what I was going to (laughs) say. I was going to say, given I think a one loss Georgia would also go to the college football playoff. 
I give a 75% probability that they make the college football playoff. So they have no chance of playing Alabama because they're in the same division of the SEC as well. So it's not like they would They would play in the SEC. Oh, so they, I mean, that would, okay. So that's two, that could be two losses. But Eric's point is, it it always depends on the competition Mm -hmm. around the country. So we wouldn't, they wouldn't get a, I mean, who knows? What I do know is that 75% is too high. I'm going to have to but but you're right. But that see that that schedule does shape up really well. All right, guys, that's probably enough on college football. Sadly, sadly, we bid it farewell for a few months. We'll come back, I'm sure, often. But NFL playoff set, an interesting was it? How interesting was it? Was it interesting? I mean, did Green Bay losing that game Sunday night? Oh, was that was an incredible game. I it actually, honestly, it was great to watch Detroit with essentially nothing to you, you know. I, you know, it wasn't a con- bite. Nothing yeah, to play for, for except for, you know, just rivalry pulled out all the stops. It actually reminded me a lot of that Eagles Super Bowl when they beat the Patriots, like just taking every chance they could and they kept coming up on it. It was great. It was fantastic. Also, uh-huh. I'm not sure. Let me just say, I think it was something like I read some, maybe I got this wrong, but I thought Aaron Rodgers had been like, I don't know, 26 and three against Detroit or something like that. And, you know, I, I'm, you know, if you believe in things like psychology and confidence, it's not obvious to me that they were playing for nothing. They're going to play Green Bay twice every year. They're in oh, the same no, I, right. And in some sense, what the coach said afterwards is, I told my guys we're playing for respect. We're playing for next year. We want to put the thought into Green Bay's mind that we can go into Green Bay and win a game when it really matters. And so all I'm commenting on is whether that's a big effect, small effect, no effect, we can debate about that. But I think Detroit was absolutely playing for something. And uh, I, I think it wasn't hard for their coach to motivate that they were playing for something. Yeah, yeah. that's true. Well, nine and eight, they got to be happy with the way that season. Uh, nine went. and eight seems infinitely week. different than eight and nine, except yeah. for if you're yeah. the Buccaneers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, let's speak about the Bucks. Let's speak about the playoffs. Um, let's talk about the probabilities. The Chiefs and Eagles got the buys. Um, we've still got the. Do we still have the coin flip thing in play? If that, if it comes down to Bills, technically, and Chiefs? yes. Bills, Chiefs. Well, neutral. I, I think neutral site. No, no. Bills, AFC Chiefs is neutral. Play. It's if if Baltimore played. Uh, no, I, th- no. I think that the coin flips out. It, was, oh, it would only coin be flips out. more played. Coin Bills flips out. With Cincinnati the for the Because the Ravens lost. The yeah. Ravens lost. Why, why would they go out. coin flip for one and neutral for the other? Why not introduce the coin flip for the AFC championship if it's Bills? On, honestly, I was so confused by their decision-making as far as resolving that whole situation. I, I, I'm not even sure I can justify it. But, but I mean, I, did, I give them points for creativity. I give them huge points for creativity. Maybe, I, maybe just the thought was that, given the extraordinarily high value and stakes of going to the Super Bowl for right. that one, we can't do randomness. We'll just great. do it in neutral Love field. It. No. Great, Eric. Thank you. I think that's helpful. All right, what do you what do y'all think are reasonable probabilities? Let me give you what unabated Sim says. With well, I mean, Massey, I think there's. Massey Peabody probability, Massey Peabody's power ratings, because it's the only one that's updated right now on unabated, running the sim for the playoffs. What do you think the top team is going to be and at what probability of winning the Super Bowl? Of winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. I would say it's uh, Kansas City. Yep. And I would say Kansas City is at about 20, 28%. <laughs> They're very precise, Eric. Good job. 25. We have, we had the unabated on Massey people. The numbers has KC at 25. Next highest is Philadelphia. Also the number one seed. Other side, 19. I mean, it, 
any model that does not have Philadelphia and Kansas yeah. City as the two highest Number probability yeah. teams is flawed. Yeah. But what's, well, what's, interesting got is, what's interesting is Philadelphia has a much higher chance of making it to the Super Bowl, but is going to be the underdog when they get there. Mm-hmm. That's the essential. I'm not, I'm not convinced right? of that. I'm not convinced well, depends of that. He added basically 40, 40 either way, 41, 41 for the Chiefs and 40 for the Eagles. So equally, I think, I think there's a lot. What's kind oh, yeah. of a, one of the interesting story, I think, storylines, at least of these early playoff part of the playoffs, so that makes it hard to predict is that we've got several, we've got three different teams currently on their third string quarterback. Yeah. And it's whether a couple of those sort of like first string quarterbacks can specifically, can Tua come back? for the wild card round. It doesn't sound likely. Can Lamar Jackson come back for the wild card round? That's maybe a little bit more likely, but not, you know, that's not a, a, given yet. So a very uncertain. Um, and then you've got San Francisco seeming to roll regardless of who plays quarterback. So, I, I mean, think I, I think, you know, that that's, you know, we've got some pretty high point uh, some predicted spreads, I think in the first round right now, because if, you know, Miami and Baltimore are both still with their third string quarterbacks. Those could really, it's its hard to imagine those games being competitive. Well, it's surprising to me how strong San Francisco is still showing up in this, given that Brock Purdy is their rookie quarterback, sixth round draft, or whatever he was, rookie quarterback. And they're still He's coming in here real strong. I mean, I, mean oh. I, 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 I echo your surprise. But it's not like they've been doing, you know, he's just been playing really well. And that, well, that, we, that, I guess, is the surprising aspect of it. Yeah, 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 right. Well, we got the, the, the numbers breaking it down a little further. Bills, clearly the class of the non-number one seeds coming in at 17%. Then we have three kind of in the same neighborhood, Cowboys, 49ers, and Bengals. And that rounds out the top six. After that is kind of the dregs, sorry, Eric, with the Bucks at 38 Oh. Jags at 2.8. Ravens playing non-Jackson quarterback, yeah. 2.4. I feel like a couple so, weeks ago you gave me those I, – I said those those top six probably captured like 80% of my probability at least. You I, did say that. Now, and it looks I like – Yeah, I was going to say, go I was ahead, there's a legitimate chance that three road teams win this week. I think the Cowboys, easy argument they could beat the Bucks. I mean, they're the better team. I don't know if they're going to yeah. beat the Bucks, but they could. Um, the – uh, Giants can definitely beat the Vikings and the Jag- Chargers could beat the Jags. Well, the, I mean, the Ravens could, if, if Jackson comes back healthy, if that's a huge, if um, they could beat the Bengals. I mean, that's not impossible either though. The Bengals have obviously been looking good lately. Um, any other thoughts across those playoffs just here in the last minute or so? I mean, I, th- I think uh, one interesting observation, first time in uh, over 20 years that all three Florida teams have been in the playoffs. I'm excited about Jacksonville, to be honest. I think, I mean, I don't think they are necessarily going to go very far, but I think it's super fun. They're in the playoffs. Um, and I, as Eric sort of said, I mean, I, I think that's that's going to be one of the kind of, at least on paper, one of the closest kind of games. Right. Wouldn't, you just, love to, wouldn't you just love them to get a shot, Shane, at the Chiefs? They they win, they play the Chiefs. No, no, not necessarily. They're the four seed. Oh, never mind. Well, if well, yes. I mean, if things go, I mean, I think the Chargers actually are. You know, I mean, if as far as a more competitive matchup, I think the Chargers match up better with the Chiefs than the Jaguars do. But yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's 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 not guaranteed either one of them would play the Chiefs unless you know the other uh, games go chalk. All right, guys. Well, we're off and running. Playoffs start this weekend. Good fun. Good fun. The knockout rounds, the NFL knockout rounds beginning this weekend after a long season. Good fun. All right. That has been the first quarter of this week's Sport and Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us. 
after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Rolling into the second quarter of this week's show, Cade Massey hosting with my longtime collaborator, Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Audie Weiner stepped away for the moment. He'll be back. Some combination of us are here every week or almost every week, maybe 49, 50, 51 weeks out of the year. Some years we're usually around. You guys can jump in. You can jump in on Twitter. Our handle up there is at W Moneyball, at W Moneyball. Easy way to check in with us. Give us suggestions, ideas, feedback. We love hearing from you at W Moneyball. We follow all of our guests. You also drop us an email. We have a mailbag via email. That address is moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. Moneyball at wharton.upen.edu. We love to hear from you. People give us a lot of feedback, suggestions, ideas. We read it all. We get as much of it as we can onto the air. We are going to take up a guest this quarter. We're slowly, maybe possibly morphing back to our original model of guest in Q2 and Q3, bookended by open segments. This week, Q2, Daniel Eck is joining us. We're delighted to have Dan on the phone, on the, on the phone, on the, on the Zoom call, on the, on the, on the, pod, on the show for the first time. Dan is an assistant professor of statistics at the University of Illinois, did his PhD at the University of Minnesota, I believe, and he teaches a sports analytics class up there at Illinois, where a couple of our guys have been, or will be, have done some guest lecturing in that class. I've run across Dan and some of his work. We want to talk about that work on baseball in particular today. Glad you made the chance, the time for us, Dan. Thanks for being here. Well, thank you for the invitation. This is a lot of fun. Good, good. Well, we're we're glad to have you. And we have been slowly taking up more baseball as we roll into first Hall of Fame voting, which is kind of its own season for some folks around here. And then we'll, you know, we'll have those famous sweet words here in a few weeks, pitchers and catchers, and then we'll roll into baseball. So we're 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 slowly ramping up and you've got some work we want to talk about. But first, why don't you give us a little bit of background on what you do, where you're coming from, why is it that you're even bothering to look at baseball? Well, yeah. So um, I've always been a baseball fan. I, I was never a baseball player, but for some reason, always a baseball fan. I used to collect cards as a kid. Um, and I think that that you know, got me into a lot of this. Um, I've always been interested in like what, fa- you know, as a kid, what factors influence the value of baseball cards, you know, I didn't do any analyses on it or anything. Um, and then kind of morphed into what factors are we can use to assess the values of players. Um, and then as a, uh, with my family and friends and, um, you know, colleagues and peers, I I like to do these all time drafts. It's like a fantasy draft where you just kind of run through the people in baseball history and then argue who has the best team at the end of the day. And it just kept going from there. And then I started, you know, looking into wins above replacement and seeing it just seem odd um, how that metric could be used to compare players across areas, not just wins above replacement, but batting average probably in particular, maybe even more, more so than wins above replacement. If you go to the career leaderboards and just look at that list um, there's a lot of black and white photos on there. I think Tony Gwynn is in the top 24 that's reported on baseball reference. And then 
maybe Ted Williams has a colored photo, but he started his career before baseball was integrated. So it's just, it, made, it just seemed odd. And then that got me to write this first paper on, um, which, which I kind of brand as a paper for nobody, um, this uh, uh, challenging nostalgia and performance metrics in baseball, which uh, appeared at chance. I say it's a paper for nobody because I didn't propose any solutions in it and kind of just said, this is a hard problem. No one's really done it okay. right necessarily. And, and I, I should you know, say that there, some, some methods are, are, are good and um, have gotten closer to the goal than others and whatnot like that. But I propose no solutions. And so- you Hold know, on, Dan, old, let me just make, before yeah. we go on, let me make sure I understand everything you're saying so far. You're, you're saying when you look at the all-time war, all-time contributor lists, that the top of it is kind of seemingly disproportionately weighted by early players. Yes. Long, long ago players. You were saying they have black and white photos because they, they played so long ago and you felt that was yes. weird. Like what, 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 I mean, it's a reasonable question. Why would it be the one era would be so disproportionately represented? I mean, the null would be that they should be era independent, right? So you should have basically no relation between the rank and the era. It seems like that might be, Unless we had some reason to believe that players were better at some era than that. If anything, right. you'd expect maybe the game has advanced and you'd have better recently. But okay, so I'm just giving the basic facts. Right. And then you wrote you wrote a piece for Chance magazine, which is a lovely little statistics kind of a. It's not quite a layperson. It's not quite a full blown yeah. academic publication. It's wonderful um, little look at um, stats. And so you've got a piece in there, but you're saying you didn't propose any solutions, which is going to set up the second paper. Right. And I, I kind of, right, right. And, and at the time I didn't have the idea for how to do it, but I was always kind of thinking about it in the back of my mind. So I was hoping to have that be a setup for this. Um, okay. And yeah. So um, yeah. And the idea but first that paper, why, why is it hard? Why is it that no one's done this before? Why, why, why is this difficult? Um, it's, it's difficult because, you have, if, if you look at batting average in, in particular, um, the distribution of batting averages has changed over time. And it starts out where there's a massive amount of variability in the older eras. Um, and um, so you, you would see a, a large number of, of people from the older eras in the top list, but and, um, and then, you know, as time has gone on, the distribution has shrunk over time. And that, that seems like, you know, that's, that's a hole for like maybe just looking at the list. But there's been methods that have come out that have, um, you know, followed that framework. Um, and so like tried that, to that, that framework, it connects to the Cornell um, um, scientist who the disappearance of the 400 batting average, right? Yeah. Stephen Jay, Stephen Jay Gould. And then, and then I found Stephen Jay Gould as I was writing that chance article. Um, okay. yeah. Uh, um, I think he's a paleontologist and evolutionary biologist okay. and he's yeah. at Harvard. He's, he's a lot of things. He, he's got great YouTube. People have recorded him and posted his videos on YouTube. He's a great speaker. Uh, he's, he's written a book, which I have right here. The full okay, house. Full, full house, right. Yeah. But this particular so, paper, this methodology was basically saying, look, you know, 400 batting average whenever the standard deviation is monstrous means yeah. a lot less than 400 means now. So as these distributions have come in, yeah. the 400 has disappeared because, you know, the, a two standard deviation performance is no longer 400 or whatever, something like that. Just basically the variance shrunk. Eric. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to ask you, Daniel. So 
someone listening to our show might be, I, you know, I since I read your paper, I kind of know your answer, but someone might say, why is this hard? Why don't right. I just compute for every year someone played? I'll take someone's, let's say, batting average, subtract the mean, divide by the standard deviation. I now have a standardized residual. How many standard deviations above or below the mean is this player? I'll add it up over their career in some sense. I'll get some sort of yeah. total residual metric for that player. And there we go. And in years where the standard deviation is small, then having a big deviation matters more. And so what would you say to that person is wrong with this, I'll call it, sum of residual method? It doesn't sound wrong. Um, and good method, and, and there are some good methods out there that have ba- uh, are based on that same idea. Um, so what I did in that chance paper, or tried to do, was um, tap, like just break baseball history into pre-integration and post-integration and um, just simple two categories and then just look at these different methods and then count the number of people in a top, we'll say 25 list or top 10 list and then compute the, uh, or try to estimate to the, um, uh, the, the, like the eligible population of people who could feed into the major leagues at any given time. And what we found was, you know, in the, in the very simple first analysis in the chance paper, it's like roughly 20% of all the people who are around to play baseball um, lived before 1950 or 1947. Um, and, um, and then so you can, you have a proportion that you, that you can treat as like a success probability. Like if you're going to randomly sample somebody endowed with like a top 25 designation in any one of these me- methods, I can look at, you know, the probability of observing this many people before who, who appear in this list. You started their career before baseball was integrated at the success probability 0.2, and then just run a binomial test. And that's what essentially we did. And it seemed to be the case that for all of these different lists, um, there's just a, like a massive over-inclusion, even with some of the sophisticated methods like the, the, um, the, uh, the, the error bridging paper and some of Michael Schell's uh, books as well. Um, so I'm, so it seems to not. So hold guys, I mean, Dan, I'll just stop you there yeah. just because I'm going to need a little bit more of an, an elaboration there or clarification from you or others on that, on that methodology again. So I understand what you're saying is pre- integration, there were just fewer people eligible for showing, for getting to the major leagues. Right. And so that's, that, that affects the probability of people who shouldn't be there actually showing up in that era. Now that changed afterwards. So you're doing something with that, but I didn't quite follow what it was. Can you give us I mean, another pass at that or Shane? I mean, I think, I, I think I, and this is, you know, this is just kind of that there, there's a disproportionate number in kind of the top sort of like, batting average war list, there's a disproportionate, statistically disproportionate number of people from that pre-integration era. Yes. That was it, right? Yeah. And so so now it's like, you know, all about coming up with a technique that better compares pre-integration and post-integration. Okay. Okay, yeah. simple enough, but I'll just trying to jump in here with the question. Yeah, so first of all, I mean, I, I, I enjoyed what you're trying to do. I, I, Stephen Jay Gould is actually very important to me as a, as a scholar yeah. because he was my class day speaker when I was graduating from college 
Oh, and wow. in some sense, pushed me to think about baseball as a serious statistical subject. Um, really? Wow. That's cool. That's something I've never mentioned here on, on Word and Moneyball. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and he, we actually use in our class uh, a clip of his when he's being interviewed on, um, I forget, one of the talk shows where he talked about uh, the why there won't be a 400 hitter. Is it the Charlie Rose one? Uh, yes, that's the one. That's, that's the one. And uh, I show it to my students. It's very fun. And it makes, it makes a good argument, essentially the argument that Eric made about if standard deviation is collapsing, then 350 is the same. You know, Tony Gwynn is uh, at 370, whatever, is the same as, as, as Ted Williams at, at four whatever, um, or, or whatever. That's essentially the argument. But one of the things that really what drives your methodology is what you call the sort of the eligible population. And as someone who's a, who has sighed reluctantly in my 50 plus years of life as the baseball went from being the sport to a sideshow, um, I wonder how you talk about that, given the fact that the baseball was the national sport. There was no substantive professional leagues in other in, uh, offering competition. Now you have, you know, even when you do have a three sport, um, athlete, what are the odds that that superstar will in, end up pursuing baseball when that was when you say pre-integration that was 100% was baseball and now I would say it's a, a tiny fraction who perceive and I think by the way they're making a mistake I think the rewards are in baseball are excellent <laughs> um, you know we were, uh, but but how do you how does your methodology deal with that because your numbers have massive massive uh, eligibility or whatever you call it populations. Uh, you, you have factors of 10 pre-1950 compared to where we are now, when I don't think that I don't think that makes much sense, at least if you think about competition as opposed to eligibility. So yeah, to just to say you are yeah. talking just about popularity in America as opposed to Japan, Dominican Republic, right. yeah, Venezuela, yeah. Mexico, etc. Yeah, but let me just I'll throw some numbers at you, at Shane. But Japan, we don't really get many. We we do have superstars from Japan, but we don't get many. Um, we only have five or six right now. How many? Two who currently playing? There's only been about sixty in the history of the game who played in Japan. They have their own professional leagues, right? So they'll go. They'll go there. Um, Dominican, we get everybody because my God, if you're if you're going to play in, uh, but there's still a tiny country. Dominican Republic is a tiny place. Um, uh, relative to the United States. Um, and even Venezuela is 10, 10 times smaller than the U.S. Dominican is probably 35 times smaller than the U.S. Um, so when you want to talk about eligibility, still 70% of players come from America. Um, it's still still substantially an American sport. And interest in America is way down compared to what it was. So what, we, what we've done, it, yes. So what we've done in, in the present paper, um, and we did it a little bit in the chance paper as well, is we, there's this Gallup survey um, that, that has been running since I think like 1937 to 2015 or so. Um, and they've, you know, not in regular intervals, but they've surveyed people on who, like what your, what your favorite sport is. And we take our MLB eligible population from America and we uh, multiply it by that interest level over time. So I think that that, so it goes back to 37. I, I, I don't have the precise number, but I think the peak of that is about 37% of people in the population viewed baseball as their favorite sport. And now, yeah, you're right. It's down to like 10 or maybe even a little bit lower at nine or seven or something like that. But, but we do do that. Um, I found some analyses which suggest that m- like maybe closer to 15% of people or young adults or high school age kids are 
playing baseball. And so I, I didn't let it go down to 7%. Maybe I um, should have, but yeah, I don't know if I, I can't tell based on that survey, if this account of it being the American pastime where everybody played baseball is accurate based on that survey data, but that's what we did. Well, and then, one thing, one thing presumably you could do in these models is just play out the results as a function of that assumption, because it's going to fundamentally, it's going to be assumption in the end and just ask how sensitive I'm sure you've done yes. something like that. But yeah. That we're, we're going to be doing something. Uh, yeah. We're going to be doing something like that too. Um, it, it's funny. Cause we, we just got the referee report back and we are going to be doing something like that. Yes. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. Hold on. Eric, Eric has a question. And then I'd, I'd like to give Dan a, a chance to just tell us what happens whenever you do consider the change in number of eligible so, but Eric, but clarify. No, I was going to ask maybe a precursor to that. Besides that, is there anything else that you allow to change? I just don't remember over years. Like, does the shape of the distribution allowed to change? Like, is there a thicker right tail of the distribution because now there's right. a broader Other population problems. of players and you would expect, you know, if you take out people of color, et cetera, then all of a sudden you might have a thin right tail or so. Is there anything else about the aspects of the distribution that are allowed to change across eras? So we do make some um, uh, um, adjustments for things like World War II and um, you know some some of the the, the, war, uh, the wars. Um, as far as the distributions, like war, we model on a rate basis and we do it non-parametric, and then we try to model the 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 tail um, in a in a principled way. And then what we do with the model is that we connect uh, we connect players to an eligible population. And we have this idea of like a latent talent value for the statistic that we're modeling. And we assume that that's Pareto and we of of a set with a fixed parameter. uh, We pick the one that, um, you know, would conform to the Pareto principle. And then we, we don't allow that to change over time. The only thing that changes over time is the number of people in the MLB eligible population. So, so, so we don't assume that like the distribution of talent is changing at all. So we don't, you know, say that uh, more recent players are better or older era players are better. I mean, um, there's just more newer people. And then the idea is to balance, you know, this, this, or, or the, the idea is that this model would capture the balance between how people stood above their peers and then balance it out to, if, if that came because of a lower population size, then that would be. Good. Okay. Hold on. Hold on. we got a couple of clarifying questions. First, I've got a super technical one, but I don't want to spend much time on it, but I do want to ask, tell us, tell those of us who don't know about a Pareto distribution, what properties does that give you that you find desirable here? So the properties that I find desirable about it is that, well, it's used in a lot of analyses. So it was something that we could reference, but the other one would be that um, people have applied it to wins above replacement. Now, this is wins above replacement, conditional on major league players, not at a population at large, and that it, um, um, you know, did a decent job of modeling that um, the distribution of war. So we thought that it was a suitable um, distribution. Uh, uh, and I'm asking a stats prof about a distribution, and you're telling me about baseball qualities. I thought you'd tell me about its tails or its relative to log normals or whatever. Like, what, what does it what does it look like? How does it act? And then we need to move on. <laughs> so it's, yeah. So it's power law distribution that the parameter that we chose it at it, um, you know, not all moments are going to exist type type stuff of that, that nature. Okay. So, okay. Um, okay. I'll, yeah. I, I'll, I'll yield the floor to Shane and then Eric. Yep. 
Well, I mean, okay, so well, I, I, well, honestly, I think we should probably talk a little bit about like how this does is changes things relative to kind of past comparisons between eras and what it really does. I mean, noticeably is in, you know, some of the kind of like like career war kind of statistics, you know, Barry Bond shoots up to the top, you mm-hmm. know, of, you know, most of these, you know, things, Willie Mayo's, Roger Clemens, these are kind of the, the top you know, kind of war getters by this kind of more, you know, kind of full house adjusted thing. Barry Bonds um, in the top war anyway? <laughs> he's he's not. No, he doesn't actually have the top war. No, Babe Ruth has the top war. Yeah, Babe Ruth has the top war regularly. Yeah. yeah. But, but again, because replacement, you know, I guess, again, the kind of one of the main things is that war, repla- what we called a replacement player back when Babe Ruth was playing is it's very right. different than the replacement player we had that Barry Bonds would be kind of compared to um i guess the question i you know that's a long way to say the question i have is you also look at things like batting average tony gwen pops up above ted williams for example uh mm-hmm. if you do that kind of adjustment using a, like a rate versus a cumulative statistic with this method do you have any kind of thoughts on what what kind of you know what whether one works better than the others because when i was reading your paper i was kind of thinking that war the trouble with war as a comparison across eras is it's not just kind of that your concept of replacement player is evolving over time, but it's also that like, you know, athletes, you know, even Barry Bonds' era, um, you know, Barry Bonds specifically, there was, there was things that were available to him to lengthen his career, you know, like, like, you know, for a cumulative stat, like war, the actual career lengths and stuff like that were very different than they were in the 1920s as well. And I don't so, know how to exactly adjust for Yeah. So, I mean, we do model it on a rate basis, um, okay. but, yeah. but, um, and then we, and then we sort of project these careers as if the rookie year began in 1977. So if you came from a time period before that, you're going to get like a game scale up uh, type stuff. As far as the career lengths and steroids, we don't do that yet. I have these fun articles where I will look at Barry Bonds as if his career ended after 1998 um, and whatnot and look and to see what he looks like. And then I have this exercise that I'm doing um, where I compare like a projection based on him to a projection based on Ted Williams or what that would look like. Um, but, but no, we, we yeah, that, that's, that's something that bothers me too about about like oh run this method and then you see barry bonds and then you see roger clemens up there where you know i mean i'm not saying anything but you know i i i uh if people ask me who the best is i, I usually say well willie mays but bonds is one yeah <laughs> type thing eric so um i was just gonna ask you um so what's the is it is it more complicated conceptually than in some sense that the older players were like, you know, um, better in a land of midgets? You know, isn't that the famous expression? Like they're just, there were just less people, less people from the tail of the distribution. Therefore you expected potentially greater spacing between them than a thicker distribution that has a narrower standard deviation and just a bigger sample? I mean, is that the general, if you were trying to explain to someone at a cocktail party why this effect, more people with a compressed distribution is going to make it harder for a recent person to be farther out in the extremes. Yes. And so is, is that essentially the cocktail part of it? That, that, that is. And that, and that hopefully that the people who are from the past era who stood out above their peers still get credit for that as well. All too. right. 
All right. Well, we're going to have to wrap up, and, but I want to give you a chance to tell us what you think is most interesting so far. We've been pushing and prodding and challenging and, 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 and identifying these things you want to work on, and that's natural for new work. But there must be some bits that you find insightful or surprising or that you take particular pleasure in. What, what, so what would this? so I, do, I do want to say um, that, you know, we got our referees reports right back. Um, some of it was uh, down the lines of what Addy was mentioning earlier and that, you know, we do have some things to address um, uh, with it, um, with some more sensitivity analyses. And so it's still a work in progress. But that being said, the things that I like about it are um, it, it, it revealed this um, in its present state, this, um, this weird uh, like paradox where racial inclusion led to like a racial bias in these statistics. Because if you have this era in which, you know, the distribution is just broader, the standard deviation is larger, and then you now interject a whole bunch of high quality players and raise the bar, compress the distribution by, you know, racial inclusion and globalization, then um, and just increased population at, at large, then that like has directly penalized the people who are now being included. And so that this method can kind of go back and maybe correct for this very inadvertent, but um, bias. So I think that that was pretty fascinating. Mm -hmm. And, and it comes back, there's, um, um, it's cool to see like players of similar archetypes from different eras, like, you know, like a Ricky Henderson versus a Ty Cobb. And it kind of like rebalances yeah. that where Ricky yeah, Henderson right. is in front. Um, and that was pretty fun. And in a previous uh, attempt, we, um, we projected everybody into the 2019 season and that was pretty fun. And we're not going to report that, but that was fun. Cause that was a bonker season. And like Hank Aaron had like 860 home runs. And um, <laughs> what was, what was the other, the other one when they're like, Mike Schmidt was like 220 batting average with like 680 home runs or 700 <laughs> home runs. And I was like, I don't know about this, but I'm like, I guess that's like Matt Chapman combined with John Carlos Stanton. So I guess it makes sense because wow. his war was super high too. There's, there's cool stuff like that. Um, Dan, give us, give us a player that you think shines. I know it sounds like there are lots of them. And of course, by different stats, different guys would pop out, but give give us another example. We've heard a few names over the last half hour, but give us an example of somebody else that you think jumps out positively. Yeah. Let's see. Um, are, are you only asking for one? Or <laughs> whatever you gave us, Gwen, and now you Ricky Henderson, and um, comes to Mike Trout. Ra- yeah, yeah, that's yeah. So Ra- Randy Johnson, Greg Maddox, shoot way up. That's pretty cool. Pedro Martinez has some really insane seasons. That's cool. Um, Albert Pujols, who's one of my favorite players, pops up a lot, which is cool. And yeah, Mike Trout. Um, in this in this analysis in these like side analyses that are posted on this uh, website that I'm working on. Um, yeah, for, for the first, you know, 11, 12 seasons on a rate basis, he's you know, the best player by war. I mean, his career isn't over yet. And so it's not really fair to compare it because he's still in his prime. But yeah, that that's pretty fun, too. So I compare him to like Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays. And if you look at, you know, through 12 seasons, it's favorable to Mantle and right in there with Willie Mays. Mays Unbelievable. Has, yeah, Mays has, has more, um, you know, plate appearances, so that should get valued more. He's missed less time with injuries. But then you look at what Mays did afterwards, and, you know, it's a bit of a drop-off, but it's it's another, like, Willie Mays. So it's yeah, like, yeah, you know, Mike right. Trout has to keep it up. That's um, great. That's great. Well, listen, I tip tip for you, in case Adi's going to referee any of your papers, you don't want to be dissing Mantle, okay? That's just a bad idea. Just, just I'm not dissing Mantle by saying that Mike Trout is better. Mike, Mickey Mantle is good. Mickey Mantle is still there. 
All right. Listen, man, Daniel, we're going to have to let you go. Thanks for taking time for us. Um, keep the good work up. Let us know how that thing evolves and let us know about your future work. All right. Yeah. Thank you for having me on here. Thank you for the, the questions and everything. And this has been great. Yeah. I'll, I'll keep you in the loop. You bet, Dan. Daniel Eck, Assistant Prof of Statistics at the University of Illinois, has an interesting working paper out that he's going to keep on chipping away at comparing baseball players across eras using the Stephen Jay Gould's inspired full house model. And that has been two quarters, the first half of Wharton Runabout. We still have a half to go. Come back and join us after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to the second half of this week's Wharton Moneyball, rolling into the third quarter. In this quarter, we're going to do another interview. We're delighted to have Erica Thompson here. Erica is the author of a new book called Escape from Model Land. Escape from Model Land. What the heck does that mean? We're about to find out. Audie Weiner came across this book in a Wall Street Journal review this fall. The book came out in November, I think, in the UK, December in the US. Some of us have read it. Those of us who have have loved it, we are delighted to have Erica here in Q3. Erica, welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Hi, thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here as well. Well, thank you. And and let it, we always ask where people are coming, calling in from and visiting in from, Zooming in from. Where are you right now? Yeah, I'm in Wales in the UK. So it's right. nighttime here for me. Thank you for staying up a little or at least staying online and engaged a little later than usual. We should say Erica is a senior policy fellow in ethics of modeling and simulation at the London School of Economics Data Science Institute. She is also a fellow of the London Mathematical Lab, where she leads the research program on inference from models. We are all inferring from models all the time. She says in her book, even those of us who aren't running stats and computers are inferring for models. That's how generally she's interested in models. Erica, with so much we want to talk with you about. We should start a little bit with your background. What is, what is modeling in your life? How did you get into this whole thing? And then, and then where we want to go is, what do you mean by model land? Like, let's really understand model land because in the end, what we want to know, what we want our audience to talk about, what we want to debate with you is leaving model land, exiting model land. But to get that, we need to get a little background on you. Sure. Okay. So, I mean, my background is maths and physics. Uh, I did a physics degree and a maths degree, and then I started a PhD in climate change science about, you know, 15 years ago. And so I started by doing a literature review. It was about the, uh, the prospects for North Atlantic storms changing as the climate changes. And I looked at a range of different climate models. And what really stood out to me as a kind of first year PhD student doing this literature review was that actually the models didn't agree very much, right? They were saying you could, you know, one model would say then storm tracks were going to go north. Some were saying it would go south. They'd get stronger. They'd get weaker. And they didn't agree within their own error bars, you know, their uncertainty ranges. And so I thought, actually, this is not telling me very much at all about North Atlantic storms, but it's telling me a great deal about how we make models, how we use models, and maybe we should be thinking more about how we assess the uncertainty of model output. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so I sort of started off there. And then I finished that PhD on um, climate modeling. And so that is a particular interest of mine and something that's picked up in the book. Um, But then Mm -hmm. I spent, I've spent the last 10 years doing uh, work on various different areas of modeling. So from weather forecasting, uh, climate insurance, um, humanitarian uh, forecasts, various things. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm just really interested in how, 
you know, how we make and use models, what kinds of statistical methods are appropriate for the analysis of model output, what kind of assumptions we make when we start making these models. And so then the idea of model land um, is, you know, where you are when you're sort of inside your model, when you when you write down your equations or you make your assumptions, you start programming your computer and you say, this is how it works. And you write down your rules and then you follow the logical consequences. And while you are doing that, you are inside model land. All of your assumptions are true and everything works and you get an answer and you can do statistics on it. But of course, <laughs> nobody makes a model for the point of making a model. You know, you make a model because you want to make decisions in the real world. You want to inform some kind of action or decision that you're going to make. And because all models are wrong, as the famous quote has it, um, we need to understand the ways in which that model might be wrong. We need to escape from model land. We can't just do statistics on the model. We have to confront it with real world data. And mm -hmm. so I'm interested in the methods that we use to do that in various different situations. And maybe we'll talk more about the different possibilities of escaping from model land and the different ways to do that. Mm -hmm. But it, it, I think it, a couple of reasons it matters is um, one, we ultimately want decision makers to use our model. We want to inform, we want to influence in some cases um, decision makers. And so they, they need to be useful. They need to be understandable. They need to be relevant. They need to be accurate, hopefully. Um, but also this is a concern because if we're real honest with ourselves, we can all admit to sometimes um, being pretty comfortable in model land. I mean, it's a, it's much more orderly. And I mean, I can just change a little line of code and it'll do something different. And it's, and you can kind of fall in love with your model. Basically, this is one of your motivations for writing this thing is see, it should see, it should seem obvious that we need to get out of bottle land. And when yeah. we have perspective, it is, but in the moment we can lose that perspective. Totally. It's a fun place to be, you know, everything works and your maths works and your statistics works and you can, you can make it you know, you can build a whole career in model land. You can you can do the analysis. You can publish the papers. Right. You can write a lot about it. So you can you can make your career staying in model land. But ultimately, that's kind of academic. If you want to actually mm -hmm. influence the real world and make real decisions, which those of us outside the ivory towers of academia probably do want to do, uh, then you have to get out of model land. Hey, that's some fancy. That's some fancy stuff for a person who's associated with LSE. Some big talk for LSE <laughs> and London Mathematical Laboratory sounds kind of fancy. I don't know. Yeah, let, let me sure. let me jump in because I'm, I'm I want to get a clarification. Now I haven't read the full book, uh, but I did read some some of the tracks, particularly the climate one, which is the one I was drawn to because I've also done climate research. Um, when you, what does it mean to escape model land? So let me just give this uh, context. So one, when I was a grad student, the first thing I learned, I was at Stanford, was what we called robust statistics, which was sort of a, a traditional statistical way to escape model land. Maybe we mean something, I think, different in the sense that when we build a regression model, we, there's a bunch of assumptions. These are our models. Yet those assumptions aren't going to be true. Yet you want a procedure that's going to be robust to model deviations, as is really how we describe it. And there's and this was a whole field, and it's actually some of the classic innovators were were lived, uh, you know, 40, 50 years ago, and they did a lot of this work. Um, but I don't think that's what you're talking about when you say escape from model land. Um, I think you're, you're talking about something somewhat different. And, I'll, I'll, and, and maybe you can clarify maybe in the context of climate, which is the idea that there's lots of different models, um, which explain how, for example, to be current, um, what is the way that increasing carbon or other greenhouse gases in the atmosphere will affect things like storms, things like temperature, but those models are very different from each other and they produce very different forecasts. Um, and therefore, 
when it comes to maybe policy, we have to think differently about our models. Maybe that's what you're talking about. So I'll just um, given those two illustrations, maybe you can yeah. clarify what it means to escape model hand. So by escaping from model land, I mean making statements that genuinely refer to our best understanding of the real world and not just saying my model says that if X, then Y. Being able to actually say it is my professional judgment that in the real world, if X, then Y. That is that that's how you escape from model land. And so it, it's good that you started with climate as the example there, because I think you can you can really you can there is a spectrum of different ways to escape from model land. And when you're in uh when you're talking about weather, for example, you know, you can get your phone out of your pocket and look at the weather forecast and it gives you tomorrow's weather forecast, but you understand because you've looked at it many, many times that some days you know, most days it's pretty good, right? For tomorrow, tomorrow's weather forecast is going to be generally fairly reliable. The weather forecast for next weekend, maybe not so much. And the weather forecast for three or four weeks out, it's not, you don't look at it, but it's probably not even there because it doesn't contain any more than marginal information. But the point is that you have a large outcome, a large archive of uh, forecasts and outcomes against which you can test your model. And so that is escaping from model land. You can give a you can give a clear statement of what you expect the reliability of that forecast to be in a in a mathematical and quantitative or qualitative sense, depending what you're intending to do with it. Um, whereas with climate models, so if you're thinking about the the much longer term, then we're expecting that the the climate is changing and therefore the underlying parameters of the system are changing. And so we don't necessarily expect that the data that we have are necessarily completely relevant for evaluating the performance of the model on the longer timescales. We know that systems are changing. Um, and so then how do we escape from model land in that situation? Well, you we haven't got forecasts that were made 100 or 150 years ago, uh, and we haven't got data that are perfectly relevant because they are, things are changing, you know, a, a Something that was relevant in a in a system with sea ice might not be relevant in a system without sea ice, and so the data are not necessarily perfectly useful. So we have to fall back on expert judgment, and then we make we make expert judgments which say things like, because this model is based on the laws of physics, you know, it, it encaps encapsulates our best understanding of the laws of uh, physics, fluid dynamics, atmospheric and oceanic motion. And therefore, we expect it to perform well in that sort of out of sample uh, performance where we we where things are changing, the underlying drivers are changing. Um, or you might look back and say, well, you know, it, it did well on this, or the it encapsulates the right kinds of behaviors. We see the expected emergent behaviors coming out of it, and that gives us some confidence. We might look at the greenhouse effect and say, well, this, you know, the, the greenhouse effect that we get in these complex models agrees with what we expect from the very basic physics, you know, that you could do on the back of an envelope that says what would happen if you put greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. And therefore we have confidence in it because it agrees with that. But we're in a much more subjective and much more multi-pronged kind of attack here. We don't, we can't just say, here's the data. How good does it do? You have to go back a step and say, actually, what are the different ways in which I expect this model to behave? How, what is my judgment, my subjective expert judgment about the degree to which those are warrants of confidence in the future? And how do I then sort of put that into my model and my quantitative output to be able to make a quantitative inference about 
the future of the real world based on the future projected in the model. Eric, is it safe to say there are two key components here that I hear you talking about? One is, this is a theme in the book, like there is expert judgment in and around before and after all these models. Like we can't, there is no such thing as just completely objective model. Far more than we like to acknowledge, sometimes our hands are all over it. So you're saying, let's acknowledge that. And and then let's be explicit about it. You're, you're ta- a lot of what you're talking about is communicate where those subjective pieces are so that you're more clear and you're not pretending like there is this objective truth that, you know, you happen to render down from God and now presenting to the world. No, there's all the subjective stuff around it. Let's be explicit about this subjective stuff. Those two bits. Is that fair? To, is that one way to characterize what you're emphasizing? Yeah, I think that's absolutely it. But maybe we have to also note that there's a spectrum of different kinds of models where things apply more or less to a different kind of model. So you say, okay, the model model that took astronauts to the moon is a extremely good and extremely precise one. And the fact that that worked so well should give us huge confidence in the ability of models to make good predictions about the future. But that gives us a real easy thing to focus on. And we should be characterizing that we should be characterizing where on the spectrum, I know it's not just a single dimensional spectrum, but where on the spectrum does this model sit? Is it a place that is as good as weather has become or sending people to the moon? Or is it much more like climate, which is much harder? Shane's been trying to jump in here for a little while. Well, I mean, I I guess I kind of seized on sort of what you were talking about early on with this, you know, subjectivity. And I agree. I mean, we do need to acknowledge much more that subject, you know, even quote unquote objective models are, are the result of many subjective decisions along the way. Um, but that, you know, again, subjectivity varies from person to person, you know, expert opinion on even, you know, the, you know, on a model comparison, if you, if you're going not by sort of historical, you know, like prediction error, then, you know, obviously expert opinions are going to vary. There's going to be a whole distribution of expert opinions. So that subjectivity itself is, is, is something that, you know, can obviously inform a model choice or can help to kind of justify a particular model. But in, in the end, you're still going to have to, you, you haven't, you're, you're, you're not, you're, I guess you're, you're escaping model dumb, but you're not escaping the ex, you know, the kind of subjective nature of, you know, the, the, the opera, the whole endeavor, because then you're going to have to come up with some kind of framework. And there are statistical frameworks that are designed to do this, that collect those expert opinions together in some way. Yeah, completely. So you're you're escaping from model land, but you're certainly not throwing away the model. You're using the model to inform the expert judgment and the expert judgment to inform the model. Um, and so, yes, there are there are sort of statistical frameworks for uh, eliciting expert judgments and then combining them. But I I sort of don't like those. I kind of I think that actually we shouldn't be we shouldn't be treating expert opinion as being independent and identically distributed. And it doesn't necessarily make a great degree of sense to try to calibrate it based on past performance, uh, you know, unless you can really say that you've got a clearly relevant reference set um, to do that with. Well, we do. I mean, but, but the entire found that's how academics works is we calibrate <laughs> our expert opinions based on that. I mean, yeah, I guess, Right. I mean, that's just, yeah, how, but you, you know, you, ba- you calibrate done. it based on data. So where, where you have data, then your posterior is mainly a function of the data. And where you don't have very much data, your posterior is mainly a function of the prior. And so I suppose what I'm saying is that in many 
areas of modeling, the prior is much more important than you might think, given the relative lack of data or, or lack of relevant data or the importance of the subjective judgment about even which data are relevant. Oh, and mm-hmm. you're speaking my language, as a Bayesian, you're speaking my language about priors <laughs> being very important and, and need be acknowledged. It's just, you know, I guess the question is sort of like who you ask to, who, how you would listen, how you actually create that yeah. prior and who you're asking is, you know, who you call an expert in the field is also a product of all this yeah. sort of yes. past, you know. But that's, that, I mean, but that's exactly it. So then, so that's one of the key points of my book really is to say that actually this means that we need to question who are the experts and why are they the experts and why do we, why do we uh, give some people that power to influence mm-hmm. the models with their subjective ex- expectations and opinions when we don't offer that same power to other people you know should you be allowed to have opinions which are more important than somebody else about a particular kind of model because you are a sort of well-educated person with lots of pieces of paper and letters after your name and you go to an elite institution you know is is there are there are some there are some qualifications which are clearly qualifications you know being being understanding the subject and being educated in the subject and having experience of the subject but then there are a whole load of other things which are sort of social aspects of expertise rather than being technical aspects of expertise and then the question of what kinds of technical expertise are relevant as well i think that's a really important one because certain groups of people have more have greater access to certain kinds of technical expertise than others. And so my, my answer to your, to your sort of question about, um, how to integrate those groups of experts and, and pull together their judgments into, into one answer is that we, we shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be trying to put them together into one answer. We should be using them to understand the range of uncertainty. And so in order to understand the range of uncertainty, as with the models, and if we say each model effectively encapsulates one expert or one set of experts' opinions, um, then what we should be doing is not trying to generate more models which agree with the previous model. We should be trying to push the boundaries as far as we can and say, well, we should we need to assure ourselves in order to be able to make inferences. We don't need to know that more models agree. We need to know that no plausible model could disagree. That's much more informative. And in order to do that, you have to push the boundaries of of what is a plausible model. And in order to do that, you need to introduce different perspectives and start thinking about the problem in different ways, model it in different paradigms, you know, try ignoring different parts of it when you do the simplification. Try ignoring the bits that somebody else thinks are important and do it with the bits that, you know, a different community might think are important. Um, mm. And so this this is a sort of, you know, it's an epistemological perspective of how we how we generate the knowledge from a set of models rather than assuming them to be independent and identically distributed throws at a dartboard, which I think is is ridiculous, really. I mean, it's a convenient assumption. It's a convenient assumption, but it's not a sensible assumption. It's one that really doesn't make sense. Let me capture a couple of a couple of points of emphasis. There are one, and you kind of ran over this, but you hit it heavier in the book. We're making all kinds of personal subjective opinions when we build our models, even when we're not aware of it. I mean, just what we yeah. think of and what we don't think of 
manifests our subjectivity. So that's one piece. The second is, okay, if that's the case, we need as many different kinds of people involved in the modeling process as possible, which is what you're really pushing on different perspectives. And then third, and this is a, a, a point that we hit on the show a lot, is um, use multiple models. I mean, ensemble, and you're actually, you're, you're saying maybe not even ensemble. Let's just get a lot on the table. We could talk later about how we bring them together, but yep. multiple perspectives, multiple models, and, and your motivation for that partly comes from a recognition of how subjective even your seemingly objective model is because of your own, yeah. your own opinion. And maybe Audience. the question is how, um, how sensitive you are to the tales. You know, if you, if, if you think that actually your probabilities are sort of all in the middle and they behave nice and normally and you can kind of ignore the tales, then maybe it doesn't really matter if you don't introduce those tales of opinions, that the, the extreme perspectives. You can just kind of carry on and model land is good enough for you and you can do your mm -hmm. statistics in the middle. Um, but if you, if you are in a real world situation where your decision making is significantly influenced by the tales of the distribution. So, you know, think the tail, tail sort of possibilities for climate change, high risk events or, um, you know, the sort of high risk swings in financial markets or whatever, then, then you do want you, you know, your decision making is and should be strongly influenced by your uh, estimate of what the tails look like. And that's where models will differ significantly. And so that's where you need to get these different perspectives on board. So I have a lot of a potential, a lot of questions to ask, but one of the things that really stands out to me is um, what you're kind of advocating for is to, to contrast confirmation versus falsification and a, a, a scientist practicing classical scientific method is out there trying to prove false their 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 research hypotheses and only when they they can't find any other plausible explanation for what they think is true can they finally um, comfortably assume that their, their hypothesis was true this is a, this is the foundation of the hypothesis test um, and and then to carry that forward essentially what you're you're you'd be arguing is that all the models say for example in climate change, they all these general circulation models and models that are built to 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 uh, explain a variation in what we observe. They all have it in a very strong uh, greenhouse gas forcing parameter. You'd almost want to let, let people build models without them and see if they can explain the data that we have. Yeah, and sure. And I mean, that's what that's what climate scientists have done. And there's basically there is no way that models without greenhouse gas forcing can explain what we have seen. Yeah. So that's exactly it. So the falsification, I mean, yes, to some extent, but but when we when we are doing modeling, we are not engaged in hypothesis testing. We are not aiming to because because you can always falsify a model. All models are wrong. And so if you continue taking more data and challenging your model with data, eventually you will find that the model is wrong. Well, and then you're left with no information. About I mean, it's not no information. Test. Yeah, we we want we want to make it more an estimate, and and and, uh, and we talk more about effect sizes than we do the then the, the the binary zero one. Um, and the real question, for example, with the greenhouse gases, is not that they don't have an influence, but what the size is, right? And and what's the range of and what and what can we exclude and what can we not exclude? Um, and that's what I mean by by falsification. Um, you know, we do this in in statistics constantly. I mean, we build a what most people are interested in ultimately is causality. And we in our show we've talked a lot about COVID. Um, and uh, we don't do enough experiments and an experiment can really elucidate causality. And so we're faced with this observational data and we require a model 
And that model will then kind of let us tease out if the model's right, causality. And without it, you're, you're, you just can't make a causal statement. Um, and that's kind of where, where we find ourselves. Um, and But one of the things that, that I think good advice that we're, that's coming from you is that, well, try to try to do it, try to model it without the thing that you think has the caudal effect. And if you can explain the, the variance. Nice, nice. <laughs> then- so I, I just want to, I just want to make some one point clear that we, we've, we, that may not be for those who don't know the book. We've talked a lot about climate and we've alluded to some other like financial modeling, insurance modeling. There's a lot in the book about epidemiology and COVID. You talked about the, the, the timing of this, right? As you're writing the book, the, 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 one of the biggest modeling exercises in the history of the world broke out right in front of you. Of course, we in our world are always talking about models in sports analytics, models of players, models of teams. And so the, the insights we're kicking around here, we would claim, you would claim, is perfectly general, that the stuff we're talking about with, with climate science would apply to modeling a baseball player. Um, in fact, I was, we, we were just off the, off the phone with another statistician who has a, has a project on baseball players. And your, some of your writing was echoing in my head as we, were, as we were talking to him. I just wanted to, and in the book, you cover a lot of these different topics. Um, so uh, Eric was going to jump in here. Yes, Erica, uh, maybe I'll start off where Kate started, which is obviously by using models uh, or not using models in certain cases, of course, you lose something. So could you tell us at least the situations where you would feel comfortable maybe making an entirely, let's even say a big public policy decision using models. Let's imagine you had very dense data, meaning lots of observations, but you didn't have an observation at a given point, but maybe you were going to do some interpolation, but you had points on either side. Or maybe you've run lots of different studies and you want to combine them in some meta-analytic way, but to do that combining, you have you choose to use some sort of model. I'm just asking, under what conditions do you think, like, let's call them large-scale policy decisions could be based on model and you'd be able to sleep at night? <laughs> well, I think uh, large-scale policy decisions can never be based solely on models because model because policy decisions imply value judgments, right? The the model can tell us what will happen if you do X, and it can tell you what will happen if you do Y, but it can't tell you how to value the different outcomes. And so there's always a political input of the degree to which you feel a certain output is important or valued, uh, and the degree to which you value different kinds of trade-offs. And so I suppose you know there is a t- tendency for people to 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 try to integrate that into the model and to say we will we will integrate all of these values and outputs as well and then we will use the model to add everything up and do maybe a cost benefit analysis and say this is the optimal policy therefore we should do that um which is sort of okay as far as it goes as long as we're very transparent about what the value judgments are that are going into that um and then, I mean, maybe to go back more towards your question, yes, I mean, I, I am happy with models informing public policymaking, not not doing the public policymaking, but informing it um, if there is if there is sufficient data. So, I mean, the, the like weather forecasting is a good example of where we have enough quantitative data available to make specific quantitative decisions about what you're going to do tomorrow. Are you going to take your ice cream van out? Are you going to issue a warning that means that people have to stay at home? Are you going to do, you know, anything from the individual to the to the very large scale decision? There is the data and we can support it. We know that it's reliable enough to make better decisions with that information than without it. And that's good. And then on the on the 
sort of longer term climate decision making, for example, it, you know, maybe we don't have enough information to support detailed adaptation decisions of, you know, we don't know exactly what's going to happen at every grid point uh, for every different city. And we aren't able to project exactly what we should do, um, you know, raising sea walls or investing in infrastructure like uh, water, water supply all of these sorts of things. Uh, but what we can say with extremely high confidence is that putting greenhouse gases into the atmosphere changes the energy balance and therefore we should expect significant changes. And so the fact that we don't have confidence on, on the one level doesn't take away from the, the confidence that we do have on the kind of more general level and they then the, the expectation that we will need to change to meet those challenges. So there's is a question of whether you are getting detailed quantitative in, insight that can support quantitative decision making or whether you are generating something more qualitative, uh, more qualitative insights that can support qualitative decision making and understanding of the situation and perhaps also uh, spur you to go out and gather more data or to make a more sophisticated model, you know, or to consider the other ways that you can reduce your vulnerability rather than necessarily wanting to predict absolutely everything. Erica, this is related to a theme in your book that you, you think we we put too much emphasis on the predictive qualities of a model and not enough on, yeah. on I don't know, maybe the dialogue inducing, dialogue facilitating qualities of models. Can you say a little bit more about that? Every now and then someone, mostly in my world from this decision science community, will talk about a decision support tool. It's not meant to make the decision for you. It's meant to yeah. facilitate a conversation about the decision. I feel like that's your your overarching way of thinking about models. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, the model will not make a decision for you unless you embed your value judgments into it, you know, and you will inevitably embed your value judgments into a model in the process of making a model, whether that's the, the value judgments of the funding agency that decides a model ought to be made or the preconceptions and biases of the person making the model or the limitations of what you even can model based on what computer you've got available to you all of these sorts of things the 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 values and the the social kind of context of the model enter into the model and they enter into the output of the model so are you, are you please yeah, I just I wanted to just to throw an idea at you because and give you to try to make this kind of real um, and how there's really a separation between the modelers and the decision makers. Take something like um, greenhouse gases and 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 there's models that forecast that do do make forecasts that they all have at their fundamental an attribution that there's going to be some effect of lowering or incrementing uh, greenhouse gases on on various different uh, uh, observable climate data. But they don't know what that what that that multiplier is, or, or if it's linear, or even or, or anything really. Yet they yet there's a politician has to make a decision on what to do, and 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 sometimes the politician gets information as if it's as, as if it's a certainty. Like if you spend ten trillion dollars to lower uh, carbon by or keep them at X levels, we will get this. When the yeah. models don't say that at all, and 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 um, and so 
it, to me, it's it's like they're not being told the the full full breadth of the problem. Like they they should be told we could spend ten million and get nothing out of this um, at all. That should also be something uh, you should be well aware of. That um, which might lead to a different spend expenditure. And for example, maybe split ten trillion dollars towards solving the nuclear fusion problem and let let it rip until it's done. Um, maybe that's the bet. I mean, that's kind of that's a politician's decision, not the modelers. I think. Yeah, absolutely. And and these are sort of value judgments about alternative outcomes and also risk appetites, you know, your your risk tolerance for the tail of a distribution in one variable versus your risk tolerance for the tail of a distribution in another variable. So absolutely. And we can we can we can legitimately disagree about about the value judgments that go into how you should respond to a model telling you if X then Y with some degree of confidence. Absolutely. So I, I'm totally with you on that one. Yeah, I mean, I mean, but, I think- but what we do get out of these models, I think, is a is a direction of travel. So you can say we don't know whether uh, you know a certain negative thing will happen at two degrees above pre-industrial temperature, or whether it's going to happen at two and a half degrees. But we can say that the probability of it happening is certainly more likely the further you go from pre-industrial climates, and therefore certainly more likely the more carbon is emitted into the atmosphere. So you have a sort of you have a convexity, you have a you have a direction of travel, and you can you can take mm. action based on that but of course you have to you have to take into account the all of the trade-offs that you're making with the other possibilities of things you can do and that's a very political decision yes well this is what i can legitimately disagree with so right this is sort of one of my hobby horses is the follow the science don't follow the science follow the values (laughs) yeah yeah um you know, that, we are that, informed by the science, but the science does, does not tell us what to do. You can completely legitimately say, OK, the science tells us the earth will be burnt to a crisp in 200 years and we shouldn't bother doing anything. Uh-huh. That's totally OK. I mean, I happen to disagree, but uh, but it's a legitimate point of view. But well, keeping is, the science what, and the values sort of separate helps. I mean, it's one of the things that makes your book compelling, Erica, because you're coming at it from a scientific perspective. You're coming at it as a modeler and yet you're overarching argument is to get some separation between the models and the decision to not over rely on the models or not believe that they are something that they're not. Yeah. Um, we, we, we're going to have to let you go, but I wanted to ask for any last advice you have to modelers. We are all modelers, but we, I think we're experienced enough to know the limits of models. And so we have modelers in our listening community. We also need to be reminded of these things. You've mentioned a number of prescriptions as we've gone through this conversation. Any last ones you'd like to get on the table? Uh, they're kind of advice on exiting model land, which is essentially how to be more effective modelers. I suppose the advice is to is to make that leap and get out of model land and say, can I can I hand on heart say that I am making statements based on my modeling that I truly believe to apply to the real world and not just in model land. Mm-hmm. And if you can, if you are writing a statement that says in my model, the following happened, you know, strike that out and say in the real world, it is likely that the following will happen and mm-hmm. be prepared to kind of back that up. Say to mm-hmm. what extent does my model actually support this? How would I know? How should I, how can I test that? Do mm-hmm. I have data or am I relying on um, sort of assumptions about expertise and model quality and the laws of physics or the laws of disease transmission or whatever? How can I how can I do that and how can I justify it to an audience? Got it. Wonderful. Okay. Erica, thank you. Thank you for taking time to be with us. We wish you the best as you continue to roll this book out. 
Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Erica Thompson, author of Escape from Model Land, new book out from the UK, Escape from Model Land, advice essentially to modelers and those who use models. Erica is a senior policy fellow in ethics of modeling and simulation at the London School of Economics Data Science Institute. She's also a fellow at the London Mathematical Laboratory, where she leads the program on inference from models. Erica Thompson. That has been three quarters, guys. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us for an open segment in Q4 after the break. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome back to the fourth and final quarter of this week's Wharton Moneyball. We have an open segment line, open segments, open line quarter here. Going back to our kind of original interviews in the middle quarters. Guys, we're just off the phone, off the Zoom call with Erica Thompson, author of Escape from Model Land. Um, I know y'all haven't all read the book or read all of the book, but reactions to just any quick, quick reactions before we pivot to the discussion with Erica. I, I have to say, I love the book. I recommend the book. I want more modelers to read the book. I mean, one, one thought. Oh, go ahead. Ari. Yeah, I, I just want to think one thing I think was really fascinating is that she she really hits on the idea that that there's no such thing as following the science. This, that means you're following models and models have to be have to have have a. Uh, uncertainty that are built in and uncertainty that's external and and all that has to feed into decisions and that is going to take into account not only the the escaping the model and the problems with the models but also bringing in your values and mm-hmm. that isn't something that is is modelable in a in a, in a specific mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. and that's i think really important to to do and and um Yet on the other hand, you still need good models so that you can intersect yeah. them with your values and make good decisions. I mean, that's yeah. that it doesn't diminish the utility of a model. Yeah, no, I mean, I really like that part too, the the kind of distinction. Because I mean, you know, you you take because uh, we talked you know about public policy. You take something like you know whether or not to do a lockdown, a public policy decision. Yeah. You had a ton of people being like, well, you follow the science, you know. Lockdown right. means we're going to have less people dying of COVID and therefore follow the science. But I mean, you can also talk about like the economic damage and all that type of stuff of a lockdown. Sure. Yeah. And if you want to ideally for to actually make a, a value based decision, we would kind of be able to model the consequences of either path and have good science on either side of it. And then as a society, we actually then can kind of, you know, basically value that trade off. So, well, so by, by, by the, real, real quickly, I mean, this wasn't the kind of model she was talking about, but decision science does those kind of models. But even the decision scientists will say it's not for the purpose of making the decision. It's for the purpose of facilitating a conversation. But they will model the yeah. utility and they will integrate it. And she's probably even a little uncomfortable with that. Adi. She is, I think, because I think she recognizes to do that, you need to have good models and models that you're relying upon. You're, again, living in model land to do that. And we saw this. I mean, Shane's point about the lockdowns, those were presented as if um, that's what the science says you should do. Well, the the scientists never said that. Um, There was almost a confusion, like the politicians sort of were pointing to the scientists to like give them cover for the decisions they were making. And that's not how it worked. They had to take responsibility for the decisions that they were making um, because they're the ones who are integrating the, 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 the models estimates with the values judgments. And we saw that play out across different countries, different states, different, even within Pennsylvania where the private schools stayed open and the public schools stayed closed. The science, mm-hmm. it's not the science, it's just values. 
Yeah. And that was, she used, she used that point exa- explicitly in the book that there the few of these models, I mean, we, we realized kind of too late that there were these costs on children who, who didn't, who didn't get to do school and they weren't, that wasn't in the models. Eric. I was just going to point out, maybe elaborating what Shane said, I think, in, at least in my home field of marketing, the reason that the greatest justification for models and even complicated models and maybe even sophisticated models is modeling counterfactuals. So what would have happened had a different policy been taken than the one that would have been taken? Because the decision maker, you know, maybe I'll even use what Adi said during the interview, which is you could spend, I forget what it was, $10 trillion, Adi, on you know, trying to get rid of greenhouse gas, or you could spend $10 trillion on nuclear fusion. And then, you know, which one is, and so you would need to understand the counterfactuals as to what would happen and models when they're good models, scientific models, help a decision maker think about which one under the following counterfactuals would actually be a reasonable decision. Good. Good. Well, so, let's 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 talk a little bit about COVID because there's some news lately on the COVID front. We, do, we won't do a lot of time on it, but we want to keep the conversation going as new science comes out. So what's the latest, Todd? So there's actually three papers that are worth talking about, uh, two which uh, which are going to bring us into model land, <laughs> uh, where I'm going to now live for the next couple of minutes. Um, and they, they directly uh, address the question of whether or not um, the bivalent booster has a benefit. Um, we didn't, as we all lamented on our show, run a, a randomized clinical trial to test the value, uh, utility of a. a so the uh, bivalent is the one that came out last fall. It's a, yeah. for a lot of people. The, it's the third booster, fifth shot. It's the mRNA based one. It's aimed especially at Omicron. Yes, it has a mixture of the original strain and an Omicron BA4, okay. BA5 variant. Okay. Um, and so a lot of people have taken it, um, not that many, and certainly younger people have been taking it, older people have taken it more. So there's actually two studies that came out, um, which are very interesting because they're both using health service workers. So one of them uses uh, Cleveland Clinic, 50,000, all the employees that they could get their hands on, which is most of them. Um, and they tracked to see whether or not the bivalent, bivalent booster prevented infection, just for uh, just plain old infection. And they, and, in, and so this is, they have a 50,000, uh, population, but it's not a controlled study. It's not a, sorry, it's not a randomized controlled study. So they weren't, that's what we call observational. So we're trying to understand the counterfactual. If a person who took the bivalent didn't take the bivalent, how, how would everything else being the same, what would their probabilities of getting infected uh, be? And this is a, a observational study um, and they controlled for a lot of different things. Of course, using a linear model, a linear logistic model, which is how these things are often done. And they ended up reporting that there was a 30% lower chance of being infected if you had the bivalent booster, all other factors equal. And this was in their kind of their headline. But if you read the paper a little deeper, you found that, that being male was approximately the same size effect. And since nobody thinks that being male prevents you literally uh, physically from, from getting COVID, um, we're talking about the, the effect size that can be easily explained by confounders. Uh, meaning that it really wasn't a very big effect, um, a 30% reduction in, affection, in effect rate. That's an observational study living in a model. Um, okay, hold on. But Adi, 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 Adi. The, for years, we have tried to focus on, I think we've, we've not tried to focus, we mostly have focused on serious illness that's where right. we can as a more yeah, I mean, the relevant. original vaccine wasn't 
didn't actually end up being all that effective infection wise, right? It was more in terms of- Oh, no, 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 no. So, yeah, so but no, it's, in its original clinical trial, it was all about symptomatic infection. And that's where it was extremely effective. Uh, effective. They, didn't dis- they didn't discuss um, serious illness in the trial because they didn't have enough people. Um, it was only later that we discovered the real benefit was not an infect- in inf- infectiousness okay. in serious illness. The reason Correct. why the clinical did infection rate is because serious illness rate is so small, your sample size isn't big enough. For f- even with 50,000, which then- And that's why, Adi, you remember in the paper, the link that you sent yeah. us, despite the yeah. fact that there was like an 86% reduction, it even said it's marginally significant because there are so few deaths. So a few deaths. So, so the second paper that I'm going to talk about, I sent you both of them, um, is the Israeli study. They looked at over 800,000 um, uh, members of a single one of their HMOs is, 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 a, is the clearest um, kind of, it's really one of their health organizations. Everyone in the country has to belong to one or three of them. So they looked at one of them called Kralit. They looked at all of them and they looked at all the 65 year olds, um, every one of them, there was no exception. And they counted how many serious illnesses they were. And they saw about an 80% reduction in serious illness. And uh, again, but the sample sizes, because there were so few ultimately serious cases um, that it's, it's hard to make a solid judgment. I scanned a few of the articles. One I read is as deeply as I could, the other one quickly. How do they deal with the self-selection of who chooses to get the bivalent, given it was not a random They don't, and none of these studies do. And this is all, again, in the model land, you are assuming that there are no observed, unobserved, and uh, confounders that could- But how can you assume that? You can't, you just can't. And what's kind of sad about these studies is they don't look at uh, maybe an alternative. Talk about falsification. We talked about this with with, with uh, Erica Thompson. Is if you were a falsifier, you would say, "Well, what is the effect of the bivalent vaccine on all cause mortality?" And it shouldn't have any, right? By by physics, it shouldn't. And if that is equally low, then that would suggest that it's something an unobserved confounder that's driving a study and Correct. not the bivalent. And the motivation that. to get a vaccine to get to get your uh, booster updated, for example, is actually. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. So, and so why couldn't they just, these, just, yeah. just for our audience, let me ask a question. Why couldn't they, since we deal with self-selected observational data all the time, both in sports and you can't run a, a lot of experiments in sports, et cetera, as well as in this, mm-hmm. why couldn't they have built a propensity score model where they build a model that predicts the probability someone chooses to get the bivalent vaccine or not based on a bunch of observables of which they have a lot in Israel match yes. people that have the same propensity and then look at outcome, which would be a right. standard so, propensity score model. Well, we should probably devote an entire kind of session to the differences between regression adjustment and propensity score adjustment, because they use those variables in their in their model. I mean, they took everything they potentially could find, like age, like serious illnesses, like your overall uh, measure of your health. But the real question, ultimately, and this is what drives all this causal literature, is that there's something it's observable else. Versus, it's observable versus unobservable. <laughs> right. and, and, and if fundamentally, the healthiest, most health conscious, most risk averse um, people that in an unobservable way are the ones running out and getting that bivalent, yes. then you're never going to be able to take care of it um, unless you get some measurement of, of, uh, of what drives you to get the bivalent booster. And that's, of course, why a randomized study is so interesting. Um, so we're left kind of hanging about the utility of the bivalent. But what else came out of the Cleveland study, which is worth, worth thinking about, which is really fascinating, they also discovered that the more shots you have, the more likely you are to have gotten infected. Uh, and this is an observational 
uh, uh, statement. It's not a it's not a causal statement. It's not an attribution, as we'd say. It's a prediction. So if you predicted using the sample that you have within the sample that you have, who is more likely to have gotten infected? The answer is the more you had the shots. Um, and they that got, caused people to wonder, wait, what's going on? And there's another paper that just came out in The Lancet, uh, which actually not Lancet in uh, another science article. Um, very heavy biology. I have to confess, I didn't understand really any of it. And it, it tries to explain how immune and the immune system can have this reaction where if you do too many boosters, it can end up having a negative effect of not reacting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting to see that there might be some science to back up because, I mean, again, hearing the first result, I just just think selection bias. I mean, like, take healthcare workers. They're obviously going to get as many boosters as as, as they come out. And obviously, but, you know, the uh, confounding variable is just exposure, right? Yeah, completely. And that's more parsimonious than the science article that Adi is too complicated for Adi to understand. It's hard, but I will say the effect sizes and we're all effect size guys here. was much larger than the, uh, than the effect size of the bivalent. It was much larger. Um, yeah. And uh, you can track those. Um, and of course, confounding can explain very big effect, effect sizes too, uh, particularly when the, the missing observables are, are pretty, pretty uh, large. Um, so it is interesting to talk about um, the potential scientific reasons for why this can happen. By the way, pre, uh, pre-COVID, it's a known issue with vaccines that vaccines, a poorly a poor vaccine can actually make you more likely to get an illness rather than less. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case with the COVID vaccine, yeah. but that was a concern um, before, before, during the early stages of the development. My main takeaway from this is just a, a reminder of how difficult it is to make draw inferences from observational studies with these, I mean, uh-huh. with the huge potential for selection effects. All right, gentlemen. What? Speaking of selection, the Hall of Fame ballots are still coming in for baseball. What's the latest? Come on, the drama, the drama. What's going on? I think I, I, I'm gonna, I'm going to say it again. I think this is. A, I'm, I'm hoping for the next 30, 40 years. I continue to go to Cooperstown every year. Um, I think regardless, this is going to be the worst Hall of Fame uh, class (laughs) that I'll ever see. I mean, I'm going to see the crime dog, Fred McGriff, because he got voted in by the, uh, you know, Veterans Committee or whatever they're calling it now. Now, maybe I'm going to see Todd Helton and Scott Rowland. You can't always be the year David Ortiz gets to the Hall of Fame. It's not always (laughs) Or Derek Jeter Jeter the year before that. Or I'm just saying, you know, uh, let me say the following, Shane, which I think you'll agree with. Let's imagine Helton and Roland get in, which right now they're trending like they might. Mm-hmm. I'll call it yeah. it's the week, it's the lowest maximum of a year where three people into went into the Hall of Fame. So you're yeah, saying I, I mean, so- I, mean I, I don't think you should probably roll the veterans committee kind of uh, like, you know, if we were to kind of go and do this quantitatively through history, I, I think, you know, I mean Fred McGriff almost by construction is a weaker candidate because he needed this new committee you know this committee to get in as opposed to being he 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 didn't get voted into the hall of fame right right or at least by the by the usual ballot i want to hear Adi's forecast or should we wouldn't you yeah. rather like it's better if these guys don't get in in terms of the sanctity right so am i supposed to be pulling for these guys not to get in and, and do i is that going to happen odd what's going to happen here Okay, so I think I mean it's Roland, then then helton then and they're the only two above the current threshold i don't think I don't think Helton is going to make it. I don't think he's far enough ahead of it. And I think that the the ballots that aren't released are more negative on people with issues. Not that Todd Helton used steroids, 
necessarily, but he was in Colorado. And we just don't know what the hell to make of that place. And yeah. how do you spell for that? And I think that those who are more statistical minded recognize that that's just a gigantic boost. And if you adjust for that in Helton's career statistics, he, he, he drops down considerably. Whether he'll make Hall of Fame in the end, is he probably will make it. But he's definitely a, a, what Eric likes to call tier three, bottom of tier three. And uh, just Famer. remind us, is it the case that they like every player drops in the pro when the private ballots come in yes. as opposed to the public one, uh, so like no, so something like Billy Wagner already being below seventy five percent, he's basically done at least for this year. Uh, you know, that's a good question. I I don't think it's every. I would hard to. I don't. Uh, but I think the big the, players I've tracked historically have always gone down. Adi, I think the, you look the, at the same number that I look at. I look at Scott Rowland. It says he 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 missed twenty twenty two by forty seven yeah. votes. He's gained eight votes among people they've already seen. So is he going to gain 39 votes among the voters that we've not yet seen? Not clear. Well, it's not clear, but we remember the vote. The, he's gained 10 votes among those votes that we've seen, but we still have a lot of votes to see. Um, before. I, I know, but that's the question. How many do we have to see? It's not clear, but, 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 but I don't think Scott Rowland, Scott Rowland is not like a, a, an asterisk uh, if, if that's the right word, candidate. What is an asterisk candidate? One who's got a question of uh, either either a DH, um, a Colorado, or a, a, a substance yeah. abuse. Yeah. He doesn't yeah. have that. that. And, and then, then finally, also, um, reliever. Uh, those are also asterisk. We don't know what to do with those guys. Yeah, yeah, right. Okay, all right. Well, we'll keep following. We'll keep looking for updates. You've got me pulling for no, no entries. I, may, I feel like a bad person, but now I'm pulling for no entries. But preserve the sanctity of Eric's trip to Cooperstown. All right, guys, that has been four quarters, a full show, two hours of sports analytics here on Wharton Moneyball. We do it every week on SiriusXM for the whole crew. Adi, Shane, Eric, this has been Cade for Matty Dats, the boss man for Dion Simpkins, the associate boss man and sound engineer making it happen. Thank you for listening. Come back and join us next time between now and then. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your sports.